0: Welcome to The Scientist Podcast, the show for anyone wanting to understand the realities of research life. We bring you into the lives of top academics, so that you can get to know the people behind the research that's shaping our world. I'm Jamie, your host, and in this podcast, I'll be bringing you candid conversations each week with those on the cutting edge of their fields. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Scientist Podcast. I hope you're really well. I've been really looking forward to this. I'm speaking to Dr. Simon Clark, who these days is primarily a video maker and science communicator. He runs a crazily popular YouTube channel where he explores a whole range of stuff, videos like Why You Weigh Less When Travelling East and What Happens When You Go Up, as well as those tracking his PhD journey and things like explorations into the biases in climate satellites. He's also a bit of a musician and a Warhammer
1: fan. Simon, how's it going? That's the most comprehensive introduction ever. (laughs) I feel like I've been put on the spot massively. (laughs) <laughs> you feel but I'm safe. good, apart from that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's really cool to have you here. And I basically just want to have a chat about all the things you're up to and what you're interested in. But mm-hmm. having included it in the intro, I do have to ask, why do you weigh less when you're traveling east? So we
1: mentioned this before we started recording. I am so happy you asked that because I think that's the video that I was really, really happy with last year. For some reason, it just didn't take off. And that happens on YouTube. It's like opening a loot box or rolling a dice. Sometimes you get this wonderful outcome. And then for some reason... Sometimes it doesn't work. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything wrong. It could just be that, well, people aren't interested or it didn't get picked up. So the reason that you weigh less when traveling east is basically it's a parallel of the Coriolis effect called the Irtvish effect, where the Coriolis effect basically says that if you are traveling away from the equator, then your lateral motion gets deflected towards the east. So as air tries to go from the equator towards the North Pole, it gets turned away and gets turned into this circumpolar kind of circulation. And the Earth's special effect is basically when you're traveling east, you are engaging in changing your angular momentum with respect to the Earth's axis And by doing that, that horizontal motion is effectively deflected into a vertical motion or an acceleration rather. And so when you're traveling east, you are decreasing your effective gravity which, you know, means that you weigh ever so slightly less, and uh, conversely, when you're travelling west, you weigh ever so slightly more. And it's one of these effects that, as so often is the case for my videos, I've read about it, it'll be a footnote in a book or something, or it was something that a lecturer mentioned in passing, and I'll just think, that's really cool, I want to make a video about that, because I think I delight in little nuggets of information that maybe don't change your life in a meaningful way, but I think are just really fun to know. They form part of your library of background knowledge. And even if the knowledge itself isn't interesting or usable, I think the methodology of how you arrive at that kind of conclusion that, well, therefore, when you're traveling east, you waste slightly less, is really useful. It's a really useful skill. And what I try to do in my videos is communicate methodology over facts. But sometimes the facts are really cool. So I'm glad that you asked about that one. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, that must be part of the fun, right? It's like on Wikipedia. It's such a fun site because there are little nuggets of information and then you sort of stumble upon them and you kind of have the sense of, God, I really want to do something.
1: I think in a way, the best videos are the ones where it's the equivalent of going to your friends. I've just learned this really cool thing and I'm really excited to tell you. And I think that people respond to those so well because I think at the end of the day, we all want that. We would all love it for a friend to come up to us and say, I've just learned this really cool thing. You're never going to believe this. But you weigh less when you're traveling east. And then they explain it to you. And I feel like that's something that is so wonderful about YouTube is that it's effectively just a bunch of, well, science communication YouTube is at its core a bunch of nerds just doing exactly that. And when you do that in a way that is as authentic as possible and it is just you as yourself, it's just a wonderful thing, I think.
0: Yeah, let's get onto authenticity here, because I think one of the interesting things about how you go about your online life is that you've given yourself permission, it seems, to be your entire self. So that hmm. includes the science, obviously, but also Warhammer and the gaming and all the rest. And in some ways, I imagine it would be safer, quote-unquote, to box off a part of your personality to put out into the world. You know, this is the science, this is the stuff that is, quote-unquote, acceptable, blah, blah, blah. So while it's the authenticity that obviously makes what you produce so watchable, were you ever self-conscious or a bit, ah about putting stuff out into the world that is so authentic
1: and is so the whole of yourself. I had a very unusual journey to science communication in that I originally was just a vlogger. I started making YouTube videos to try and show people what life was like at university because I went to Oxford for my undergraduate and I went from a state comprehensive school where nobody had ever gone to Oxford to study physics before so I had no idea what life was like and I effectively started making videos just to try and honestly capture What the experience was like, kind of warts and all, and it was very boots on the ground kind of perspective. And it was when I was doing the PhD and I still carried on making that kind of video that I uh, realised that maybe I could maybe try and do YouTube full-time and do the science communication thing. But by that point my background was such that my audience was used to my all being present and it not being a show. And when I made the transition from doing vlogs to doing sort of more psychom stuff, I realised that actually my videos were a product at the end of the day, and the product was me. It was my life, which is quite an uncomfortable realisation I think to have that you're effectively commodifying yourself, your existence. And um, when I changed to doing psychom stuff, I quite consciously said that I am stepping away from this such that my life is no longer the product, but I still want to be fully present. I want this to not just be like seemingly so many other shows on the internet, where it's a show, it's a product, that there's not really an identifier human at the heart of it. I wanted it to still have that sense that the vlog had of an authentic person making this stuff and being this stuff. It's almost in a kind of transcendental way, not being the product, but being, infused in the product, if that makes sense. Like a homeopathic video where there's one part of me for every thousand parts of science content, it is still there. And to the people that consume it, an important part, I think. And important to me that I don't just make generic content that, you know, anybody can find interesting science facts and find stock footage and music and whack it together and make a video like anything else on the internet. But the thing that I want to do is not just make any video, but to make my videos. And that necessitates me being in the product, but now not being. The product
0: yeah but i understand why it's a slightly uncomfortable realization because it also mm-hmm. makes you closer to it the stakes are
1: higher you're somehow more on the line because now you're the product and if it changes how you live your life because you think i should do these different things i should do these activities because that will make good content not because i will enjoy doing it and when I made that decision actually to start doing sidecom stuff rather than Karen with the vlog that was very conscious of I don't want to modify how I live my life just for the purpose of making content So I'm not going to go traveling just to be able to make videos about traveling or I'm not going to go and do activities with brands Just so I can make content. I think that was the real moment where I sort of said this is where I need to step back because It's a two-way street between the content you make and the life you live at the end of the day. When I find something interesting and chase down that rabbit hole, it will affect my thought processes, it will affect the knowledge that I have, but I very much wanted it to be more... The traffic was more going one way than the other way, and I wanted my life to dictate the content rather than the other way around.
0: Is it ever tempting to think, oh, well, in the short term, I could probably produce a video that would get X number of hits? if I was just to do a little bit of modification.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think at the end of the day, it's like artistic integrity in any medium. You know, you have people that know there's the crowd pleasers and then they have the content they want to make. And the best artists, I think, are the people who convince people that what they want is what the artist wants to make. And that's how they you know, change the game and they are able to be happy making stuff. I think if you are forever chasing what people say they want, you're never gonna be fulfilled in your work. So yeah, it's definitely a temptation. I've had so many requests over the years to do for example, one of the very popular series, fortunately, that I've done is with my friend, Dr. Hannah Wakeford on planets from fictional universes and sort of asking, could they really exist? And we had a blast doing the first one and it was so successful, we thought, well, you know, let's do another one. And then I said, actually, i quite like to do another one because I think it's really cool. But it was always stuff that we found interesting and it was planets that we thought were interesting. We were never really concerned about whether people would watch it or not. But along the way, we've had so many people asking us, oh, can you please do one on the planets of Star Trek, of TNG? and we've always said no because they're really boring. It's not content we're interested in making because the planets of Star Trek are all the same. And what we're thinking of doing is a piss-take video of, on the surface, could the planets of Star Trek really exist, and then pointing out that they basically fall into two or three categories. You know, partly that is driven by the fact that, oh, people do say they want this, but maybe we should give them something they think they want, but then subvert their expectations, to use a very sci-fi phrase. And you know, that's one example. And you definitely see other people on the platform doing particular formats and those formats doing well. And you think, well, it doesn't quite align with what I want my channel to be about, but I could do that, I guess. And there is that temptation but I'm in a very fortunate position that I don't have to chase those kinds of clicks. I'm established now in terms of the content I make, I have a large back catalogue, so I don't feel that constant financial pressure to be chasing what people say they want. I recognize that that's a very privileged position and it does mean that I can actually take a step back and say, no, I'm going to make the stuff that I want to make and if people like it, great. If they don't, I don't particularly care because it's the content I want to make.
0: It's almost analogous to lying, as strange as it sounds. You know, lying is a very good short-term solution because it avoids awkward conversations, you can sort of wiggle your way around. But in the medium and long term, it's corrosive to your relationships, it's unfulfilling, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I think people on YouTube in particular have very sensitive bullshit detectors. I think they can really tell when you are doing something and your heart isn't in it. You know, this is a generation that consumes so much video content. Young people who are using social media sites are not only consuming content in that medium, but they're creating it themselves. They're creating stuff on WhatsApp or on Snapchat or Instagram stories, whatever it may be. And so they, I think, can tell when something is inauthentic because they recognize it in the stuff they make themselves. As you say, I think it can be effective in the short term, You know, maybe once in a blue moon, you can get away with doing something like that. And you certainly see large YouTubers sometimes doing a brand deal and you think, Uh, I don't think this is exactly you and I think I can tell you've done this for the money but because it's a one-off I'm not going to let it affect my opinion of you as much but yeah it is a short-term game long-term pain kind of choice. Authenticity with content is so interesting though because if you look at Instagram at least I'm 23
0: amongst my friends the classic Instagram caption is kind of all lowercase all very relaxed but you sort of know when you're reading it that it's been sculpted and crafted but it's been sculpted too in this ironic kind of Post-fact way, you know, it's the candid photo,
1: and I think we might be at peak that, and perhaps it's dwindling already. Because, as I say, people are creating and consuming in the same medium, and that's the first time in history that that's been the case. You know, when people got most of their information from newspapers, they weren't writing newspapers themselves, or when they were watching TV, they weren't making TV themselves. But now, when people consume stuff on social media, they are used to making it themselves, and so I think people, like you just said, recognise that it's crafted, that there isn't real. What's perhaps worrying in my eyes is that in the next five to 10 years, maybe, you're going to get people going to positions of power in media agencies who grew up doing this, who grew up making their content. And so understand that relationship between their audience recognizing how crafted something is because they make it themselves. And that's going to be really interesting because it's going to change how large corporations with large budgets make their content because they fundamentally understand how people interact with social media in a way that the previous generations just haven't really quite got, I don't think. So perhaps we're at peak, I don't want to say sort of fakeness or plasticity. Post-authenticity. Post-authenticity, yeah, exactly. Perhaps we're at peak post-authenticity now, and that's going to decline. But I think the next phase, I just struggle to see what's going to happen when people that understand that go to positions of power. And it's something that I can't help but worry about. I feel that the power of social media is, everybody talks about how powerful social media is at the moment, is such that another aspect of people making content that they also consume in the same medium, I mean, is that they can take things as being truthful without really passing it they don't necessarily critically analyze it because they recognize a piece of content as being similar to something they have made. So it's something that I call the Blair Witch effect, where people found the Blair Witch story to be so frightening because they believed that it was found footage. And they believed it was found footage because it aligned with so many other bits of media they'd seen and likely made themselves in terms of handheld shaky camcorder footage. And they almost subconsciously tricked themselves into believing that it was authentic. And that's my worry, is that people are perhaps more and more media literate, but they're not actually analysing the stuff that they are seeing. They have the tools to do so, but they don't choose to do so. They mistake manufactured authenticity at the moment, I think, for genuine authenticity, or what's the word, verisimilitude. You know, it has the appearance of being truthful, but is not actually truthful.
0: Which is the argument against, I guess, the
1: idea that we are actually at peak post authenticity. Yeah, I think the fact that people have the tools to analyze these things, but because of all the reasons we just outlined, they are I think subconsciously choosing not to. And I think they're subconsciously choosing not to because it makes their lives more enjoyable. Because it's more enjoyable to watch Geordie Shore or Maiden Chelsea and believe that this is how these people's lives actually go down and it's not all scripted. So I think people have the tools more than at any other point. The literacy is higher, but perhaps people are not using those tools, using those skills. Yeah, I don't know if you ever watched WWE when you were growing up. Only a tiny bit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a tiny bit
0: is almost enough to realise Like, there's a real incentive psychologically to think this thing is real. Because mm. you want to think that The Undertaker has come from the dead. Their storylines are so vivid. But you secretly know it, but there's this cognitive dissonance where you can kind of hold off the reality because it's
1: dopamine, right? Yeah, because it's more enjoyable to just turn your brain off and you get more enjoyment by not critically analysing it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's dead on.
0: This podcast episode is sponsored by BioBox Analytics. BioBox is a data analytics platform designed for scientists and clinicians working with next-generation sequencing data. With Biobox, you can design and run bioinformatic pipelines on demand, generate publication-ready plots, and discover insights using popular public databases. Spots are limited, so sign up for the waitlist and be the first to access a free account at biobox.io. To turn into the science, the best thing about this question is whenever you ask it to a scientist, you get a different answer, which is kind of wonderful. Well, this is about physics and science more generally that's appealing. Where's the kick? Why do you do science rather than any of the countless things you could do every day? (laughs)
1: I think science in general is so appealing because at the end of the day, science is not a thing. It is a methodology and the methodology of collecting data and analyzing it and finding out something that nobody else has found before, even if it's a general principle that other people have stumbled on before to actually have the data in your hands and to possess knowledge that nobody else knows. And you then have an opportunity to introduce to people is wonderful. It's the root of education at the end of the day. It's introducing new data into people's lives and having a framework to do that. But in terms of why physics, physics is magic, basically. There's something magic about being able to say, well, this is what is happening at the moment. And we know how things evolve going forwards. And so I can predict what the future will hold, given my knowledge of those laws and the current information. And that is magic, as far as I'm concerned. There's something... Just so, I think it's an empowering feeling about being able to do that.
0: Yeah, there's something here about bringing order to chaos, you know, you Mm. don't understand the process and that represents chaos. You collect the data, you filter it, it makes sense. You come up with a conclusion and then you share the conclusion. That's like the extra layer of order, right? Mm. Only if you understood the thing, but now you're sharing it in a way that that understanding permeates outwards. I
1: definitely think that, especially when you put it like that, there is also definitely an aspect of ego to it, which could be ego of, I am master over nature, bow down before me. You know, I know all of your secrets and how you move and work. But then also the ego of... I know this thing and I want to demonstrate to you that I know this thing and you know, make me feel better about myself. And I feel like this is obviously massively generalizing, but a lot of the people that do do science perhaps don't feel empowered in other aspects of their lives because they are you know, socially belittled or outcast by the fact they find this stuff interesting. And so they latch onto it. There's a positive feedback cycle of it empowers you and it makes you feel powerful by understanding how this stuff works. Yeah, and that's the oldest
0: story in the book. It makes an immense amount of psychological sense. I read this Guardian article about James O'Brien, you know, the LBC host. Mm. He's super confrontationary and quite a lot of fun, if only because the confrontationary ones usually are kind of on the right and he's kind of on the left. But anyway, this article said, you know, he got beaten up at school and the way he developed a feeling of being powerful or empowered or able to navigate his environment was being able to debate and argue. So lo and behold, you get really skilled at debating and arguing. And that sort of eventually leads to a career on LBC. With Hmm. science, I'd imagine it's the exact same thing, albeit a massive generalization, that if you feel slightly powerless in some ways and unable to explain what's going on, well, there's a very clear method of doing so. And it's kind of like the empirical version of the Socratic method. And to project slightly, I think, so my undergrad was philosophy, and I often feel like when I've done my master's, I felt like a philosophy student doing a business degree. Hmm. And that little thing about I've got to be analysing the world alongside a certain framework is totally, probably an ego thing. You know, it comes back to this idea of, well, it's something to feel, I don't know about powerful, but
1: with power, at least the ability to navigate a little. And the first step to that is identifying a framework, as you say, sort of bringing order to chaos. You can never feel powerful over chaos. Sorry, it feels like we're talking about Warhammer now. But, you know, the first step to being able to imprint your desires onto chaos is to structure it. And that, at the end of the day, is what science is. It's a structure. It's a framework. And as you said, I guess it is kind of the oldest story in the book. I'm interested that some people are attracted to some frameworks and others are
0: attracted to others, right? I do Mm. understand what the variables are psychologically that predict, well, someone's going to latch onto a scientific framework because there's a certain kind of order there. There's an empiricalness to it. There's a solidity to the scientific method. And other people might think, well, actually, the kind of framework that's worth navigating is totally creative. And actually, I feel quite bogged down.
1: And I think a lot of it also, though, is the scientific framework is institutionalized, or rather, it represents institutions, and it represents organizations that concentrate power. And, you know, compare that to an artistic framework, which is intensely individual and subjective. And by saying that you like science and you identify with that framework, you're effectively saying that, you know, you desire to be part of a larger entity, a larger organization that standardizes how we look at the world and that you are trading your individuality for that sense of belonging. As you say, there are almost certainly indicators for why somebody would do that or not. This is interesting
0: because, you know, postmodernism, it's a fluffy movement, but it's basically the rejection of all of the above. In some ways, the arts are inherently slightly anarchistic, You have to have a slight flavor of rebellion, a slight something. And the interesting thing with science is it makes no apology about being part of an institution. In fact, the solidity and the empiricism comes from the fact you were joining this kind of massive community furthering the human project in these very marginal ways. It's strange, but you kind of take pride in a backwards kind of way about Mm. the fact the gains are so marginal. Because the yeah. fact that so marginal means, well, look, one person, a very clever person mind, an academic, can only make this tiny little dent.
1: Well, the institution must be immense. Yeah. That's interesting though, that, as you rightly say, that sort of postmodernism is a rejection of all of the above. Because I identify as somebody who is scientific and loves those frameworks, but is also somebody who is artistic. My two passions when I was growing up were film and science. So I've had a foot in each camp. So perhaps I'm the worst person in the world to actually imagine how a postmodern interpretation work really because I can imagine those two ways and there is no third way. It's interesting, what was appealing about film? I think if I had to sort of analyse it a bit it would probably be because it was a fantasy and it was this portal into an experience that was totally unlike mine. Like so many kids I was introduced to Star Wars when I was quite young and that blew my mind and it was watching the Battle of Endor on repeat, it was watching the Empire Strikes Back on repeat and naturally I wanted to Well, perhaps not naturally, but I very much took from that that I wanted to help create those fantasies, even if I didn't actually know how practically that would work. And when I originally was introduced to Star Wars, I never considered, for example, that Hoth was filmed in Greenland or Norway or wherever it may have been. It was just that, oh, that's really cool. I want to be part of this. I want to be part of the fantasy factory, you know, and express myself, I guess. I had ideas being a kid, you know, you have this creativity oozing out of your ears and you want to express yourself and show people these ideas that you've had. And film was the most evocative way of doing that. It was all of every other art form all rolled into one. It was music and it was design and acting and editing and cinematography and absolutely everything all in one place. And so it was just intoxicating, really. (laughs) Is that not the same kind of magic, or is it a different kind of magic you get from the physics? Interesting question. I suppose when I say physics is magic, I mean that, I suppose in almost a gatekeeping kind of way, because it produces an effect that is magic, but only to people that don't understand or don't have the knowledge of the equations at the heart of it. So it's effectively gatekeeping magic by saying... You know, don't look at the mechanics behind the curtain. I'm going to tell you that this thing is real. And so perhaps it appears that you have this power and actually you're just following a rule book and a recipe, really. Perhaps there is a similar thing, I suppose, about the magic of cinema in that if you know how visual effects and editing work, you can pick apart, you know, and look behind the curtain of something like Star Wars. Whereas if you don't know that, then it's just a miracle that this thing exists. So perhaps they are actually, in a sense, both magic and only magic because of a certain form of knowledge that you're privy to. Again, perhaps that's a power structure.
0: I really like that. I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about whether something gets less beautiful, less magic, less meaningful, the closer you look. Because, you know, on the one hand, if you're 10 years old and you go to the cinema and you have no understanding of the lights or the music, I mean, it's magic. But the flip side, and this is why I spent so long thinking about it, is you kind of need all that knowledge to have an appreciation of the subtlety and I'm wondering if that applies to physics too. Is there something in physics? Is there an elegance to physics that someone who only knows it kind of in the most vague sense
1: would struggle to pick up? I definitely think so. I think Feynman said something about this, Richard Feynman, about the beauty of a flower is not diminished by knowledge of physics, but enhanced by it. I definitely think that's true. That you know, I can introduce somebody to the equations that describe how a fluid flows, for example, but I think the knowledge of where those equations come from, but also the historical context of how that understanding developed and the social context of where these equations came from. What were the socioeconomic factors that led to their discovery? I genuinely think that that's an understanding that really enriches your experience of a concept or an experience of a phenomenon. Like, I can watch the Northern Lights like anybody else can and find it absolutely beautiful, but I don't think it's diminished by me understanding what's going on and the mechanics that's going on. I think it only intensifies the beauty of it, really.
0: Yeah. And there's a macro micro thing happening here, because if you know more about something and it provides context, well, nothing's beautiful without context. Context is the thing that makes it so beautiful. It's only the very micro kind of analysis that makes you maybe lose sense of that context. So it's not that the knowledge actually makes it less beautiful. It depends on sort of whether that knowledge is providing a wider spectrum for you to go, whoa, it's really Mm. cool that that theory developed out of that socioeconomic period versus getting lost in kind of the notation of the maths, to give you an extreme
1: case. Yeah, there is no beauty without context. That's a wonderful statement that is definitely true because that's also in the context of knowledge of the natural world makes the aurora so much more beautiful because they're so unique. Mm. But at the same time, the context of where the solar radiation comes from that's causing the oxygen and nitrogen to fluoresce, the distance that it's traveled, and the mechanism by which it's created, only adds layers to it. So, you know, you're taking an object, it's basically like putting a fancy frame on a picture that is already beautiful. But, you know, that picture, if it just blended into the background, would not be anywhere near as beautiful as it being contained.
0: No, in some ways it sums up the satisfaction of seeing a process too. If you have the beautiful picture as the end of the process, but you've kind of seen the stages. At the end you go, whoa, you know, how complex is that? It's like, um, I was watching a YouTube video the other day of someone playing Sudoku. And... That sounds like a slightly strange exercise, but it was amazing. It was a 21-minute video. So I clicked on thinking, okay, well, I'll get through three minutes of this just to check it out. Get through 21 minutes and scroll down to the comments. And everyone's like in. Everyone's in. They're loving mm-hmm. it. And the reason why they're so engaged is because the guy who was doing the Sudoku was giving the relevant facts, the context, the meaning. And I think actually it's interesting. When it comes to YouTube videos, I guess you're kind of trying to have to weigh this up, right? Because you are wanting to give enough context so people understand why it's interesting that we weigh less when we move east. You know, what is it about weighing less at different times? It's interesting. You need to kind of have some vague sense of like, well, isn't weight something that has to do with food and exercise? It's got nothing to do with the micro movements of geography.
1: I mean, and that at the end of the day is the fundamental struggle of the communicator is knowing the context of the assumptions that your viewer has about the topic and about the general field that it fits in, about the format that you're communicating it in. That is fundamentally what I spend a lot of my time worrying about, is effectively what angle do I pitch at? What direction do I take with this project? And I used to think that, in a way, being a science communicator, being a truly good educator was a self-defeating task in that if you did a really good job with communicating something, you rendered something so obvious, so understandable that you don't need anybody to explain it. And you think that, oh, the person explaining this actually had a very easy job. And I suppose that is still true in that if I do my job correctly, people should be so amazed at how easy it is to understand this stuff that you don't need me anymore. But at the same time, it's not so much of I'm trying to get rid of myself and the job that I have. It's trying to bring everybody up to this perspective. It's like helping people up a mountain in order to show them the landscape that they were in the whole time.
0: Yeah and with education it's even more severe because it's not just that I didn't need you, it's that you're not that clever. Whereas if you gave me something I didn't understand, well naturally the person who explains it we kind of think does understand it and they understand something that I don't. Ergo they're really smart. And in some ways the whole job is to try and not dumb yourself down but make it sound as if you're
1: nothing so special. I want my audience to realize I'm quite stupid. And that's the ultimate goal, really, is to (laughs) <laughs> is, to, is to say to people that, you know, take this concept that you thought was so difficult and actually prove to you that you don't need to be smart to understand it, which in a way I've just realized is the opposite of doing science. It's an ego deflating exercise, whereas science is, look at me, look at how smart I am. I can do this thing that you cannot. Science communication is fundamentally about saying, I can do this thing. You can do it too. You don't need to be special in order to do this. So, I suppose in a funny way, science and science communication go in exactly opposite directions in terms of your ego. I read
0: through some of your PhD, and the barrier to entry for understanding any of it when it came to the mathematical side is incredibly high. That is a flourish in gatekeeping, you know? Whereas (laughs) if we were to talk about your PhD, and I'm going to ask you about it, you would say, oh, Jamie, it's this really cool relationship, and actually it matters what's going on above the North Pole, because really when we have cold temperatures in Europe, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And those missions do seem, like, opposed. See, it's
1: funny that you say that the barrier to understanding is so high, because to me I think it's so trivial. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a very low-level thesis, but, you know, I have the worst possible perspective on this because I lived amongst the trees for four years, and so of course I'm going to think that. As someone so, who
0: didn't live amongst the trees, I can tell you. I mean, <laughs> actually, I'm interested. It's a maths PhD. It's not, but it's in the Department of Maths. Is
1: that what happens? Yeah, so Exeter doesn't put atmospheric physics in the physics department. Basically, it's a subset of climate, which is mostly found in the maths department because Exeter has this thing going with the Met Office in which a lot of the research that's done in the climate stuff in Exeter is really about using statistics. So we slot it in under there. It's bizarre to me that I technically have a PhD in mathematics because I always consider myself to be not a very good mathematician. It's quite cool. It gives you an abstract air, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do equal parts delight in it and (laughs) find it embarrassing that I don't belong. (laughs) Well, given that you're a physicist, it would be quite nice to have a PhD in physics. In physics, exactly. I'll I'll take the master's, that'll do. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Did you do your master's at Oxford as well? Yeah, so it was an integrated master's. It was four years of uh, undergraduate.
0: Let's chat BBC Bite Size. This is something I'm so keen to shoehorn in here. So BBC size is one of those things I sort of secretly kept using well into my undergrads. So I was really excited to find out you filmed with the BBC
1: on their GCSE section. How was all of that? That was really fun. That was the first time I'd done kind of proper what I would term contract work. You know, somebody was hiring me to do something, which was midway through the PhD, I think. And they flew me out to Belfast and we filmed there for the best part of a week I don't know if I've actually told my supervisors. <laughs> I think I emailed them to say I wouldn't be in the office. But uh, that was a fantastic experience because I was also involved in the pitch. I was involved in the production company going to the BBC and they asked me for my sort of sci opinion of how can we make this more interesting? And I sort of gave some answers. And there was a moment when we were filming and I was sat on a trapeze In my rowing onesie from my Oxford College, about to demonstrate the periodicity of a pendulum. Because the idea that we'd had was that I'd sort of pushed was take the experiments that the kids are going to do in school, like using a stopwatch to time how long it takes for a pendulum to swing, but just make them huge and just take any experiment and make it bigger because that's just more visually interesting. And I was sat there on this trapeze about to jump off and thinking to myself that. I really need to think before I send emails in the future. Yeah, but how cool to have a platform
0: where you say, let's make this thing big, and lo and behold... It happens. Making it It big is such a tried-and-tested way of making it fun. No one quite grows out of that particular relationship.
1: Yeah. I don't want to grow out of finding big things immensely cool, you know, like when you go to a big science institution like CERN or somewhere like that, the thing that you take away and the first thing you say is, it's huge, you know, that's not, it was so complex, but it's huge. And I kind of never want to lose that. It's liberating to hear that that's true, even when you understand the maths. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the people that end up doing science as a career are massive dorks. That's the thing, you know, I don't think you ever grow out of that mindset that you have in school of this thing is really awesome. You know, it's why you get people who watch Star Trek when they were kids or watch Star Wars when they were kids. And they're still fans now as an adult because... It taps into that sense of wonder that never seems to go away with age. And I feel bad for people that for whatever reason do lose it because I think it's such an important thing to retain a childlike wonder about the universe. That's just something that is the most uncomplicated joy. And that's something that's so rare. It's also
0: in some ways like entirely a renewable exercise. We're given the universe. The universe is here. I mean, it couldn't have to be so interesting. It could (laughs) have been, really, I mean, it could have been something we figured out quite quickly. But the fact that, you know, I'm reading some very popular unscientific quantum mechanics and it's blowing my mind. You know, we live in a universe where things at a micro level don't behave as they do in a macro level. And that's just a wonderfully cool thing. Have you ever dipped your toes into that kind of water?
1: Do you mean quantum specifically or? Yeah, quantum specifically. Yeah, well, I mean, I did two... Oh God, how many modules did I do in total? I think three modules in total at Oxford on quantum. And I think perhaps because anybody that wants to go to a top university has read about this stuff and you've heard about it before and you've watched Brian Cox talk about it a million times on TV. So perhaps that initial shock, that initial wonder is somewhat lost. But then I think it gets replaced by a different kind when in the quantum case, for example, you learn the mathematics and the fact that the mathematics of quantum are so different to the mathematics of Newtonian physics, and yet one smoothly becomes the other at some undefined point. So, you know, I definitely know that wonder. Do- I mean, the thing that actually the time in my degree that really got me was the astrophysics module, and basically in the cosmology section, drawing diagrams of the rate at which galaxies are receding from us, and the realization, as sort of instructed by our tutor, that there are some galaxies that are so far away that because of the expansion of the universe, we will never be able to reach them because they're receding away from us faster than the speed of light. We could never close the gap and reach them. And that was the moment I remember in my degree that really blew my mind. It made me feel very small. And that really captured, actually. That, for me, was the moment of this has reshaped the way I think about the universe, which I think is the thing that a lot of people have about quantum is that this is so cool because it fundamentally strikes at a column in the foundation of my perception of the universe. Is
0: that a process that happens increasingly less than more you know about science? So at the start, you're like, whoa, hang on. Electrons aren't just rings of 28888s forever Mm -hmm. and ever, and that represents...
1: I think perhaps it does within a certain field, but the wonderful thing about science is that it's fractal, and there's always another subfield to discover. And, you know, I know plenty about atmospheric physics, and the Eertsvist effect is an example of something that I discovered relatively recently that's very relevant to my field, and still got that sense of wonder. But, you know, when I read stuff about... I'm reading Emperor of All Maladies at the moment, for example, about cancer, and That's a field that I know very, very little about. And so, those moments that jump out at you and really make you sort of question your perception of how this particular thing works are just as frequent as when you were a kid and discovering your field for the first time. And it's not just in the sciences, you know, it's in history, it's in geography, it's in basically any academic subject. The universe provides such a rich seam of concepts that you can stick your teeth into. And I don't see anybody running out of those before their time on earth is up.
0: Yeah, ideas just end up being the funnest thing there is. You know, there are these kind of abstract playthings and because they're abstract, you can play with them in slightly more ways than you could if they were physical.
1: And the more of those ideas that you take on board, the more connections you see between them and the patterns of thought, the, you know, similar types of structures. It's almost like when you learn different languages and you recognize that, oh, the grammar in French, this is just like this bit of grammar in Spanish or this bit of vocab is the same. And those connections only become more frequent the more languages you learn, the more fields you learn. And I think when you really get to a deep understanding, when you've learned lots about several different fields and you make a connection between all of them at once, that's the most pleasing type of understanding understanding and again comes back to the beauty of that moment is provided by the context it's provided by the breadth of your knowledge yeah and it's worth saying here
0: you're not just interested in science although you are a science communicator i was looking online this sounds like a strange thing but i guess it's what you do when you research a podcast <laughs> i was looking at the books you had read online you know you have a list of them and yeah. we had the fault in our stars we had sapiens is that the same flavor of curiosity the same texture of curiosity
1: as science
0: or is it something slightly different
1: I think, I think yeah, science interests me because I want to learn more about the world. I find the world miraculous and I want to learn more about it. And science is effectively the quantitative, data-driven way of doing that. And humanities are the qualitative, experiential way of doing that. And so I think it is that same desire to want to learn about the universe and just have that curiosity of, you know, what's underneath this leaf, or what happens if you go past that mountain? It applies in the physical world, but it also applies to why is there a huge amount of economic disparity in the UK? How does that compare to other countries? How do we perceive the idea of democracy here versus in other countries? I think it is that same curiosity.
0: And it's the same fundamental question of what are the mechanics that are running the show? Yeah. And you're looking at manifestations of those mechanics, and then you're trying to sort of
1: reverse engineer the mechanics themselves. To get an understanding, yeah. Understanding, I guess, is nothing more than the reverse engineering of repeated mechanics. (laughs) I really like that as a
0: sort of definition for understanding, because it distinguishes nicely from rope learning and understanding.
1: Yeah, there's a difference between knowledge and understanding.
0: (laughs) I play badly a lot of chess, and when you learn chess you're not supposed to touch openings, because one opening you'll end up doing is you'll end up learning the thing by rope, having relative levels of success, and not understanding any of the mechanics. So there's a phrase that says, if you want to learn openings, learn openings. If you want to learn chess, learn end games. Because the end game, you can't learn an end game. There are mm. too few pieces and too many squares. So what you have to really get engaged with is the mechanics and the understanding of space, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that probably applies to everything, but science is the most obvious example. I mean, I cringe at mentioning Einstein on the science podcast, but here <laughs> we are. You know, he apparently just stared at a compass and was, hang on, why are these things moving? Why is the, what's the word here? The needle. <laughs> the needle, thank you very much. We almost went with the stick. <laughs> why is the needle moving and that fascination sparks kind of you know a lifetime of science and I think I love that all understanding is is the reverse engineering of an outcome of a
1: repeated outcome yeah because and that's what experiments are it's if I do this thing what happens okay that thing happened what happens if I do it again what happens if I change this way of doing it and it provides the data of doing that and I think That's how science does it. In humanities, it's about drawing on repeated experience of this person has experienced this thing and come to this conclusion. How about this person who is different in this way and grouping all of that together, which I find, perhaps because I'm trained as a scientist, so much more impressive. I find the people that do PhDs in the humanities so much more impressive than people that do PhDs in science. And I know that the people who do PhDs in humanities can often think the opposite. <laughs> so perhaps it's just a, an academic grass is always more difficult kind of thing. A little bit, and the people in the humanities are scared it of It was notation. my pleasure, Whereas yeah. you, guys,
0: you guys are fine. You guys are just fine with notation.
1: Whereas we're just scared of lit reviews. We like to keep it <laughs> nice and minimal. <laughs>
0: Well, Simon, thank
1: you so much for that. That was brilliant. That was a lot of fun. No, my pleasure. I always love talking about this stuff. It's being able to take a step back and look at your understanding from a different perspective, which is only possible when you have somebody else saying, like tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hang on, what about if you look at it from this angle?
0: Well, everyone, that was The Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.